Now, we're in the middle of a sermon series called Relationship Killers. And the premise, like we said, is pretty simple. God created us to be relational beings, to have companionship with him and with each other. But Satan wants nothing more than to destroy that which God has given to us. And that's why we're looking at some of those sinful mindsets, those sinful actions that can make a relationship go sour. And already we've talked about lust and adultery, how Satan tempts us to satisfy God-given desires in ungodly ways. But now as we move on to the next relationship killer, we need to clear something up. Because for many of us, when we hear that term, relationship, we immediately think about our spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or some kind of romantic relationship. But it's really important for us to broaden our scope here because these killers we're talking about address and are applicable to all kinds of relationships. Co-workers and siblings, friends and neighbors, parents and children, so many more. Because all of these are important forms of companionship. All of these are gifts from God. And while Satan certainly attacks our marriages, he also aims to destroy every other kind of community. So today we look at the relationship killer that is pride. And right away, we need to understand that there are two types of pride. The first is the good and the godly practice of finding satisfaction in a job well done. And Scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes that it's appropriate, it's good for a person to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun. It's a good thing. That's not the type of pride we're talking about. Instead, we're talking about the pride that urges us to seek our own glory and to put ourselves first. We're talking about a pride that elevates our wants over and above the needs of others. We're talking about a pride that insists that our way is right and that our standard is the only one that matters. And that kind of pride is deadly to a relationship. And we see that demonstrated for us in our gospel lesson today. We had Mary, and she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. But meanwhile, Martha was focused on all the preparations, the chores that had to be done, the food that had to be made, the dishes that have to be done. The two sisters are in stark contrast to each other. And I know normally, like, if you hear a sermon about Mary and Martha, they're going to ask you, like, are you more of a Mary? Are you more of a Martha? Are you type A personality or a type B That's not really the point of the text. The text paints Martha as an example of what not to do. She illustrates the problem. Certainly the problem of worry and distraction and busyness, and those are sermons for another time. But she also demonstrates and illustrates this problem of pride. See, she sees Mary as indignant. She sees Mary, and she's indignant about it. She says, Lord... Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, I know if you have a sibling, if you have uh, more than one child at home, you know that Martha is not the only person to have uttered this sentiment, right? Mom, Dad, I'm doing all the cleaning and they're not helping at all. That's not fair. That's not fair. But for Martha, it goes way beyond a desire for fairness. Because note this, 
Martha's not just mad at Mary for sitting at Jesus' feet. She's mad at Jesus for letting Mary do so. That's the issue. In Martha's mind, she's the one who's doing what needs to be done, and everyone else, Mary and Jesus, are slacking off. She's right. Everyone else is wrong. Pridefully, Martha puts her way of doing things above Christ's way. Pridefully, Martha sees a problem and she points the finger at Mary, at Jesus, at anyone besides her. And I imagine, even if Jesus had told Mary to go and help her, I still don't think it would have made Martha happy. Because Mary wouldn't have done it the right way. Right? Not according to Martha's standards. She would have gotten in the way. See, in this text, Martha is exhibiting a prideful heart. And it threatens to destroy her relationship with her sister and with her Lord. And the same is true for us. The negative consequences of pride in a relationship are far-reaching. And this morning, we're going to look at just two ways that pride eats away at our earthly relationships. First, pride makes us self-absorbed. It inflates our egos. So we see ourselves as superior to others. It makes us selfish. So that all that matters to us is what we want and the needs of others become a nuisance to us. Right? It strips us of our empathy for other people. So imagine this. Imagine you are stuck behind someone who's driving 10 miles slower than the speed limit. You ever been there? Yeah. And the longer you're there, the angrier you get. And you're stuck there, and you're honking, and you're kind of swerving to see if you can make it past, and finally the opportunity to pass them comes, and you slam on the gas, and you go past, and maybe, if you're honest with yourself, you might have this desire to turn and to give them a, a bad look. Mm -hmm. But what do you see when you look over there? You see a scared wife who's driving a very injured husband home from the hospital. And they were going slow because every bump is excruciating pain for him. But at the time, all you had cared about was that they were keeping you from where you needed to go. You didn't care about their safety. You didn't care about their well-being because pride produces selfishness. It makes us self-absorbed. That happens on the road with strangers. It also happens in our deeper relationships. It may be unintentional. It often is. But we can so easily become self-absorbed. So concentrated on our own goals, on our own issues, on our own desires, that we don't take the time to think about the other person in that relationship. And so we stop reaching out. We stop asking about their day. And we start growing apart. The prideful heart puts itself first. And it cares little about others. So first, pride makes us self-absorbed. Second, Pride makes us self-righteous. The prideful heart refuses to admit wrongdoing. The sad reality of living in this fallen world is that our relationships are all riddled with conflict. Right? We, we're not always going to say the right thing. 
We're not always going to do the right thing. We're not always going to be able to meet every need the way we should. And feelings are going to get hurt. That just happens in every relationship. But in a healthy relationship, both people look to repair those hurts and to resolve that conflict by acknowledging their faults and being quick to say, I'm sorry. But pride keeps us from that, keeps us from owning up to our contribution to the conflict. It eliminates the repair attempts that could heal a relationship. It's that mentality that says, well, they were wrong, not me. So it's up to them to come and apologize. I'm not taking the first step. It blinds us to seeing the ways that we've helped create that conflict too. It tempts us to shift 100% of the blame onto them. I'm not to blame. It's Mary who won't help me with the chores. It's not my fault there's tension. It's my mom who won't stop telling me how to parent. It's my boss who has no idea how his decisions affect my work week. But I'm not to blame. They are. I'm right, and they're wrong. But not only does pride stop us from making repair attempts for a relationship, but it also keeps us from accepting repair attempts from others. The prideful heart refuses to let go of an argument because it cares more about being right than about the relationship itself. And when neither party is willing to say, I'm sorry, and I forgive you, then that conflict festers. Or when one person's always forced to be the one to back down, it breeds resentment. But either way, a relationship that operates like that can't survive for long. Consider a situation where some friends were playing pickleball, right? And a shot was hit right down the middle, and both, both people thought it was the responsibility of the other. That could be resolved very simply. It's a simple apology. Oh, yep, my bad, no big deal. But instead, these friends dug their heels in. And they each believed that they were right. And as a result, they never let that disagreement go. And that small disagreement escalated, and it created tension throughout the rest of the game. It even poisoned the friendship afterwards to where they never wanted to play again. This seemingly trivial matter ballooned due to their selfish and stubborn pride. So we see two things. Pride makes us self-absorbed. Pride makes us self-righteous. And not only does that wreak havoc in our human relationships, but it also creates a barrier in our relationship with God. Because from the beginning, the creator-creation relationship was designed to be one where he provides for our needs, where he guides us through this life, where he loves us unfailingly, and we respond with reverence, with respect. But pride is fully opposed to that relationship. The prideful, the sinful pride within us takes credit for the provision of God. It says, I did that. I don't need God. It rejects the guidance and the will of God because after all, I like my way better. And when we are self-absorbed, we care little for God's people. We care little for his word. We care little 
for his, king, for his mission. It leads to a lazy heart that refuses to show Jesus' love because after all, that would impede on my comfort. Or when we're self-righteous, we make the mission all about glorifying ourselves and measuring our worth by all of our good deeds. That leads to a judgmental heart that forgets that we are in constant need of God's grace. Pride is antithetical to the gospel. It says, I don't need Jesus. And that's why the Lord tells us in his word that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. And in all his thoughts, there's no room for God. See, pride is deadly because it keeps us from the grace that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. Not because it's not offered to us, it is but because pride refuses to receive it. And yet God, in his grace, doesn't leave us in pride. No, as the Proverbs say, it says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And you, probably, you might have heard that line before. And often we hear that line, we hear that proverb, and we say, that sounds bad. That sounds like a punishment. And yet, no. In reality, that's an act of love. That God is so loves you that he's not willing to let you stay in pride, but rather he wants to humble us to remind us of the grace that we need. His discipline, not pleasant at the time, but it teaches us to rely on the forgiveness, on the faithfulness of the Father, and it forms us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. See, on our first reading from Philippians, Jesus serves as both the example of humility and as our humble Savior. He humbly leaves the throne room of God to be born in a stable. He humbly submits himself to a life of service. Jesus humbly calls the weak and the poor and the lowly to be his disciples. He even washes their feet. In his own words, Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that's exactly what he's done. He has served you. He has served me by coming to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer. As the text tells us, this Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, and even death on a cross. And Christ's selfless sacrifice accomplishes something that we can't. Because though, though pride plagues our hearts and it plagues and destroys our relationships, Jesus has had mercy on us, taking away our prideful heart and giving us a heart of compassion, a heart of humility. He lovingly shifts our focus away from ourselves and onto the cross to see that Jesus has paid the punishment for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. And because of Jesus, because of his grace that's given freely to you, there's no need to elevate ourselves above another because we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross, equally loved, equally forgiven. Because of his grace, we are freed from trying to find a righteousness in and of ourselves because he has made us fully and perfectly righteous through his blood. 
his loving nature overcomes our sinful ones. So that no matter how many times we screw it up, his love for us is unfailing and it is unending. And that selfless act of love is what Paul is referring to earlier in the Philippians text when he says, for us to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. As we take on this mindset of humility, it frees us to love others well, to set aside our pride for the good of another. Why? Because of the salvation that's been given to us and the security that we've received from Jesus. Because of that, we are freed to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility to value, our, to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of us to the interests of the other. We're freed by the gospel to do this work. Not so that God can love us, but because he already does. Now this idea, briefly, I need to explain one quick thing. Sometimes we get it wrong-headed in our, hind, in our minds what it means to value others above ourselves. Because it's easy to say, and it's hard to practice. And it's hard to practice because it, it requires us to face our own brokenness and to acknowledge our own weaknesses, to rely on the grace of God. That's tough. But here's what humility is not. Here's what it does not mean to value others above yourself. It does not mean giving people the ability to treat you poorly. The call to set aside our pride for the sake of another does not mean setting aside our innate value in the eyes of God as he has made us his children. As we wrap up, let's think on this. That the scripture teaches us very simply that humility is the path to healthy relationships. While pride demands, this is my right, humility invites us to lay aside that pride and that right for the love of another. And when we do that, when we humble ourselves and seek the good of the other person, oftentimes our love and our respect for them are reciprocated. As we acknowledge our faults, we're opening the door for the resolution of the conflict, for the forgiveness of sins, for the repairing of the relationship. But even if our humility, our love, and our respect, even if it's not reciprocated, we still try to emulate our Savior Jesus, who gave his life for us. As 1 John tells us, we love because he first loved us. And since we have so great a Savior, we come to him now in prayer and in confession, humbly acknowledging our sin and admitting our need for his grace. And so we come to him in prayer. Father God, as we reflect on the problem of pride and the problem of, of selfishness, we acknowledge our guilt to you. We confess that we often put ourselves, we put our goals above the needs of others, even the needs of our loved ones and our cherished relationships. And there's a constant temptation within us to sacrifice our relationships at the altar of self. And Father, we confess that we can be self-absorbed at times and inwardly focused 
so we don't show love and care for others. We confess that we can be self-righteous at times, judging others instead of seeing them as fellow children of God. Father, we confess that in our pride we can puff ourselves up, that in our selfishness we can cast people aside. Lord, we're bold to approach the altar and ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for this and for every other sin that weighs heavy upon our hearts this morning. Remind us of your love and of your grace that's in Jesus Christ, that he humbled himself to die on the cross for us. Have mercy on us for his sake. Amen. God has heard our prayer. And he has shown mercy. He has shown love to us because of his son. As the scriptures say, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And you are that blessed one. You are one who he does not count your sin against you because of Jesus Christ. Because he died for you. Because he rose for you. And instead of counting your sin against you, instead he's given you a glory that comes from the Lord. He's given you this gift of eternal life in the presence of God. Rest assured, your sins are all forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We continue our worship.